0: My great, 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 great grandfather was about 44 years old when he went on a boat from India to the island of Mauritius, somewhere in the 1840s. Now, if you understand, if you know British history, you know that slavery was abolished um, in the British colonies in 1833. And then what happened in a lot of the British colonies is then, they then brought in Indian indentured labor, as they called them, which was kind of a nice way of saying, um, essentially they were almost like slaves as well, but it wasn't quite a slave. So that's why you've got a lot of Indians in different parts of the British Empire in areas where there's no real Indian heritage. You find different islands in the Caribbean, you've got Indians, some of the African countries, and Mauritius as well. And so Indians went to Mauritius around in the 1840s. And my great-great-great-great-great-granddad great was one of them who went there. But he was in his 40s, and it's strange because most of the Indian indentured labourers who were then sent around different parts of the, uh, the empire to work were in their 20s. They were strong men in their 20s, and they would go to work. So why did this one and then a few others in their 40s get sent? And so when we were looking into the family history, we found out a little bit of history because it was kind of an anomaly that someone in their 40s would go when everyone else was in their 20s. Come to find out that my great-great-great-great-great-great-granddad was a little bit of a rebel, which amused me. Maybe it helped to explain a little bit as well. Was a little bit of a rebel and he was a dissenter, which is a Posh way of saying he was rebelling against the British Empire in the city in which he lived. And he was organizing or involved in some insurrection or rebellion, and his punishment in his older years for doing so was to get sent to work in the sugar cornfields, sugar cane fields of Mauritius. Hence my family has a heritage in Mauritius interesting little fact of history or fact of our family's history, and it helps to explain in some ways a story as to, you know, that's in our family heritage. If we were to sit around here and tell some of the stories in our family heritage, there would be some interesting stories that we could share. Some very, very interesting stories that we could share as we start to unpack our family heritage and where we come from. Stories are important in the Bible as well. In the Bible the book of Daniel is possibly one of my favorite books in the Bible and I like Daniel because as a book some of the prophecies in Daniel are some of the most powerful prophecies in the Bible Daniel 2 Daniel 7 Daniel 8 Daniel 9 but the book of Daniel is almost split in half in terms of content half of the book of Daniel is prophecies But then the other half of the book of Daniel is stories. And we are very familiar with Daniel chapter 1. As children growing up, we're very familiar with Daniel chapter 3. We're very, very, very familiar with Daniel chapter 6. Because even though there's no prophecy or doctrine overtly in there, these stories have powerful moral lessons that we learn from a young age if we grow up in a Christian home growing up and we teach those lessons to our children the stories in Daniel the bible's full of stories as well and tonight i just want to share with you some of the uh, a few stories in our heritage that i believe are interesting and bear lessons for us today as adventists Because it's easy for us today to sometimes think, well, you know, we're here in this little uh, corner of the globe, but where do we come from? We looked yesterday at some of the doctrinal backgrounds, yesterday and the day before, some of our doctrinal heritage, some of our uniqueness in terms of doctrine. Today I want to look at a slightly different angle, maybe not so much doctrine-heavy. Tell me a story. I shared this story another night. William Miller. Birthplace of Adventism in America. William Miller was a deist. Anyone know what a deist is? A deist believes in God, the existence of God, but believes that God is an impersonal being. And the way God relates to the world is the same way that you relate to your wind-up alarm clock at night if you still have one of those. Meaning you wind it up at night and then you set it there on the side, and it ticks away. A deist believes that God just wound up the world at creation and left it. Uninterested and uninvolved in the affairs of men. William Miller was on the battlefield when he was fighting the British in 1812 when when, when a cannon landed about three meters from him and went off, and he did not die. And in his mind, he started to think, well, well, maybe, maybe God is involved in my life. And he was fighting there in the Battle of Plattsburgh in northern uh, New York State. And they were fighting the British troops who had just come away from a battle with Napoleon in Europe. The British troops were career soldiers, paid soldiers. They were very highly trained, had all the latest equipment and gear. And he was fighting with fellow farmers and other people who had volunteered for the army. They were outnumbered four or five to one. They should have been routinely beaten. And yet they beat the British at the Battle of 1812. Defeating the British along with that cannon landing about three meters from him got him thinking that maybe God was more than just an impersonal being and maybe God was actually intimately involved in the affairs of men. Otherwise, how could they have won that war? He felt that divinity was on their side. And it started a process of him giving his life to Jesus, a process that never never finished until the day he died. William Miller then started to study his Bible. And as he was studying his Bible, he came across the passage of Daniel chapter 8, verse 14. You can go to his room today, and uh, there's his room and his bed. And after he had discovered the meaning to that text, he he, he he felt the urge to preach, but he didn't want to preach, and he resisted that urge to preach for approximately... It was about fifteen years. But eventually he said a prayer if I get an invitation to preach, I will preach. The door knocked five minutes later, and he went to this grove. And as he was there pacing up and down, his daughter ran back in the house and she said to Mommy, She said, Mommy, Mommy, something's wrong with daddy, something's wrong with daddy. Well, something was wrong with him. He was under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And as a sign says, he went in a farmer and came out a preacher. You see, there's, a, there's, there's kind of almost a principle that we find from this story. Something about what God is looking for in the lives of us today. And it's also what God is looking for. for it's, it's also what God wants us to look for in other people. In the early days of the Adventist church, God didn't seek out the most educated. He didn't seek out the most wealthy. What God needed was honest men and women who, when they saw something was right, they changed their lives accordingly and changed their beliefs. You know, when we do evangelism at church, we shouldn't pray God fill the church. God can fill the, the church can fill with whoever you want. But pray God give us honest people. Give us people that when they see something is right, change their lives accordingly. There's that story of the of, of the one adventist who went to a town in michigan and when he went to the town in michigan he said to the uh, i forget exactly who he was talking to but he said to the 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 first man he met he said who is the most honest man in this town and he said the most honest man in this town is a man by the name of david hewitt so he went to see david hewitt because he was the most honest man in town And when he went to see David Hewitt, he said, David Hewitt, I've got something to share with you. And he shared with him the truth on the Sabbath. And when David Hewitt saw the truth on the Sabbath, David Hewitt said, huh, that's the truth? I will keep it. If people came to your workplace and they asked your boss, who's the most honest person in this workplace? Would your name be the first one on their lips? If people came to your street and said, who's the most honest person on this street? Would your name be the one that's called? God's looking for honest people. Honest people who will see and change. You know, it's interesting, our church started in the northeastern part of the United States of America. This is a picture of the Portland headlight lighthouse that sits just outside the city of Portland, Maine. Ellen White was baptized in the sea, not too far from this place in her teenage years. It was not too far from here where Ellen White received her first vision. Also not too far from here where she met a man named James White. At the young age of 19, and he was 26, they stood in front of a justice of the peace whose name was Charles Harding and they both got married. Very few friends, no money, very little possessions. They went back to live in the family home after they got married, but both of them had a deep conviction that God wants us to be together for the purpose of ministry. Prior to that time, Ellen White had started traveling and and James White, seeing her travelling didn't think it was right for her to travel as a woman on her own so he accompanied her on some of the trips where she went but that kind of has its own complications as well and so for the purpose of missionary expediency they got married and as they were married in their early years it was very very hard very very hard in the early or the mid to late 1840s, James White, there wasn't a church then. There wasn't a publishing house then. There wasn't any of these things that we have today. There was no school system. There was nothing. It, it's fascinating when you think you just got a few scattered believers. And all they've got is a conviction that what they believe is right. That's all they've got. They don't have money, they don't have lands, they have conviction. And James White worked on the railroad laying railroad tracks and every morning before he went to work him and Ellen White would kneel at the bedside and pray and they would say lord give james enough strength to come home today every night they would kneel down and pray lord thank you for bringing my husband home next day same prayer next night same prayer he would lay railroad tracks and get paid the equivalent of about $1 per day. Then, after getting paid a dollar a day laying railroad tracks, he would then save maybe 20 cents of that dollar or 30 cents of that dollar per day and siphon that money away and put it in a pot that he would then use. To print a tract so he could give it away. Today we get tracts given to us by the personal ministry department. We get tracts given to us from the pastor or the youth department for free. No sacrifice, no laying of railroad tracks, nothing. Just given to us. And if, God forbid, The church asked us to pay two pounds for a hundred. Oh, my. Whoa, 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 whoa. He also had another job cutting corn and grass. He would have to cut one acre. One acre. You don't know how big one acre is? I don't know, is that the size of the plot this church is on maybe? No? An acre's bigger than this church, right? Probably twice the size or three times the size of the plot, four times of the plot this church is on. He would have to cut an acre by hand. And cut an acre by hand, he would get 75 cents. 75 cents. Young man in his late 20s. And he would do that so he could support his wife, and he would do that, and he would say these words, I hope to get a few dollars to use in the cause of God. Our early pioneers started the work in great sacrifice. Someone writing later on said these words, they said, they, said they pinch here, shave there, cut here, and by and by they will be able to give. Twenty-five cents, fifty cents, and perhaps in rare cases, one dollar. When you look at the story of Ellen White, yes, today you can go to Ellen White's home, and you can go to California. You fly there, you go to California, and you go to Pacific Union College, and you can see Elms Haven, the home Ellen White died in, and it is quite an impressive home. It's quite nicely furnished. But I can assure you that when she was starting out in ministry, that's not how she started out. There was severe sacrifice and hardship in those early days of the late 1840s. Let me show you another story. Anyone recognize this lady here on the screen? You should. Not so so much you should, but her story should be more better known, and we should all know exactly who this is. We know her brother very well. We know her brother very well. Her brother wrote a book called Thoughts on Daniel and Revelation. Unfortunately, we don't know his sister as well. Her name was Annie Smith. Sadly, she only lived 27 years. At the age of 10, she gave her life to Jesus. At the age of 10. And she looked forward to Jesus' soon return in 1844. But when Jesus didn't come in 1844, she gave up her hope in Jesus' return in her early, early, whatever they would have been, 12, 13 years old. And she wasn't a Christian for about the next, or professed Christian or practicing Christian for the next eight years. In 1852, Joseph Bates was going to Boston and he said to Mrs. Uh, Smith, he said i'm going to be in boston and she then contacted her daughter and said please go and listen to captain bates please she had nothing else to do so annie smith she went to go and listen to captain bates and as she went to listen to him he offered to have bible studies she had bible studies she got reconverted and she gave her life to jesus again she was a very gifted and intelligent person She got offered a job when she finished school at the Charleston, I forget exactly the name. Anyway, she got offered a job at a top Boston school to get paid $1,000 a year. $1,000. That's a lot of money. And it was rare for a woman to get offered a job that was so high paying. So she gets offered this job. That's the house that she was born in. You can go there today. Well, you can't really go there. You can go and take a picture outside. The person who owns that house, actually, is a major general retired from the U.S. Army. There's, like, Google his name and you find a bunch of news pages coming up. He was, like, head of the U.S. envoy in Moscow during the, uh, the Cold War. And they know the historical house they live in. And anyway, we knocked on the door and had a good chat with them. They get lots of adventists come by. She got offered a job for $1,000 a year at a top Boston school. The other job offer she had, and and to call it a job offer is quite generous. The other job offer she had was from James White. He said, please come. This is the city of Rochester. You can't see, see too clearly. He said, please come to Rochester, New York. And work for the Review and Herald. Okay, what's my pay? Zero. What's my living conditions? You can live in our house. Who else is in the house? Oh, there's about another eight people and the printing press in the house too. What about food? Well, we'll live. It won't be five star though. So she says no to the job given a $1,000 a year which was extremely high salary, and she goes to live in what essentially, today we would describe it as a youth commune. There was a bunch of people, all under the age of 30 or 35, living in a singular house in Rochester, New York, with a printing press there, and there they all lived, they shared their money, they didn't have any any salary, and they just lived and worked, and ministered there in that house. She went there. They sacrificed a lot in that house. One quotation from this period says, "We shall see this church through, if we have to live on cornmeal mush and water." Uriah Smith also had a, a, a prosperous job offer, and he turned his prosperous job offer down to go and live in this house in Rochester, New York, as well, at the age of 26. No salary, and he'd been living there for approximately three weeks. And he says this kind of tongue-in-cheek quote. He said, I don't object to eating beans every day. No, he said, I don't object to eating beans 365 days a year. But when it becomes a habit, I've got a problem with that. They were so poor, they couldn't afford potatoes. They had to eat turnips instead of potatoes. They were so poor they couldn't buy butter for the bread, but they would use fruit sauce. I don't know why fruit was cheap. fruit sauce was cheaper than, than, than butter, but anyway, they would buy fruit sauce to put on the bread instead of butter. No potatoes, turnips instead. Now, that's a hard life. And there they lived in this house. You know, several of the people who lived in that house, they all died. Nathaniel White was James White's brother. He came to live in the house. You could go to the, the, um, the Mount Hope Cemetery in Rochester, New York. There's some famous people buried there. You've got Frederick Douglass buried there. You've got Susan B. Anthony buried there. But you've also got this little plot where there's a few Adventists. And they're all young. Nathaniel White, James White's brother. How old was he? He was twi- uh, 22, 22, 23. He was the first editor of the Youth's Instructor, which became... Later on became, was it the Guide magazine and Insight or whatever that we have today? Anna White, his wife. How old was she? She was a little bit older, 25, 26. They died of tuberculosis. Essentially, and part of the reason why they died was they weren't having a healthy diet. They weren't living healthy. But they got tuberculosis, and then Annie Smith, the one I was mentioning earlier, she caught tuberculosis. And she had to go and move back to the family home. And they tried everything. Ellen White herself sent $75 of her own money to try and give health treatments to Annie Smith to help her out so she could live. But it was a slippery slope. If you got tuberculosis back then, it was almost like a death sentence. And her health quickly um, slid down. And Annie Smith, unfortunately, died at the age of 27. You know the old Advent hymnal, not the one we have today, the old Advent hymnal? It had ten of her hymns in there. I believe if Annie Smith had lived to be 60 or 70 or 80, she would have probably been the most famous Adventist songwriter we'd ever had. Ten days before she died, she finished a book called Home Here and Home At Last, a book of her poems that Uriah Smith published. One of her famous hymns is called I Saw One Weary. Four, four, one in the Advent hymnal. There's four hymns in the Advent hymnal now, the new one, that are from Annie Smith. I saw one weary, sad, and torn. And rumor has it that the first verse, I believe, was about Joseph Bates. The second verse is about um, uh, James White. And the third verse, well, there's debate on the third verse. Some say it's Jay and Andrews, and some say it's actually herself written in third person. There's an interesting story about Annie White, actually, Annie Smith. You know, today, if you go to West Wilton... Cemetery, that's all she's got there in the ground, that piece of stone there that says Annie, Annie, that's it. But the legacy of her life is far better than that, because when she went to go and live in Rochester, James White was traveling all the time. Even though he was the editor of the Review and Herald, she essentially was the real editor, He was traveling preaching, and before she went there, the Review and Herald wasn't being published on a regular basis. Some months they would go, and some months they wouldn't, and so on, because he was traveling all the time. But when she went there, she brought some order and discipline, and she was essentially the resident editor while James White was preaching. And the magazine in those days was like, was the glue that held the early Adventists together. Today she's just got that piece of stone in the ground. But her legacy is far, far greater than that. Who's this guy here? Anyone recognize him? John Loughborough. We used to have a school in London named after him. John Loughborough. He, as a young man, went to go and live in Iowa to be a missionary along with a few of the people from Maine. As they got there to Iowa, it's kind of a sad story, they got there to Iowa, and the church didn't have a tithing system, they didn't have an offering system, they didn't have any of those financial systems that we have today in place. And so we went out there as a missionary, and when he got there as a missionary, guess what? The work was hard, money was tight, and sooner or later, he had to go back into normal work just to provide for himself. Ellen White, who I believe was a prophet and a great mentor, heard that the believers in Walken, Iowa, were not all firm to the plow like they used to be. And so Ellen White got into her, her horse sled in winter time. She left Battle Creek, and today if you drive it, it would be a seven-hour drive, 444 miles. If you do that on a horseback, it's a lot more than seven hours drive. It's days, if not weeks, for you to get there in winter time, in snow. And when they got close, you see, in order to get there, you've got to go past this river here. That river there is called the River Mississippi. And in wintertime, it freezes. And when they got to the River Mississippi, you can read about it in the book Life Sketches. As they got to the River Mississippi, the ice... It was kind of the end of the winter. It was getting into spring. The ice was slushy on top. Now, if you go to um, the, the, the internet, they'll tell you that you need four inches minimum to walk on, five to seven to put a snowmobile or probably like a horse on, eight to 12 to drive on, and 12 to 15 for a bigger vehicle. That's clear ice. It was slushy ice. And so it was somewhere there, but probably wasn't quite there. And as they got close to the riverside, the captain or whatever the guy is called who's who's driving it, he leans back to Ellen and James White and says, what shall we do? Ellen White said, onward, onward, trusting in Israel's God. As they went over there, they say the slush came up about five or six inches over the rails at the bottom of the sled. A crowd gathered on the far side to see who were these foolish people going across the river when it's not even winter time. They barely made it to the other side alive. Ellen White had a mission though. Her mission was to go and see these brothers who had gone out as missionaries and were no longer acting or living full-time missionary lives. She got to walk in Iowa, the story goes. She found out where one of them was, and I believe the story goes that J.N. Loughborough was up a ladder, banging a nail, building something. There's apparently someone today who claims it's the exact building where he, he banged the nail, but we're not quite sure. He's banging the nail into the building, and Ellen White walks to the bottom of the ladder and looks up and said, what doest thou here, Elijah? He looks down and sees the prophet. She looks back up and says, what doest thou here, Elijah? That wasn't all she said. She spent two weeks with them, ministered to them, encouraged them. And Jay and Loughborough made a commitment to go back to full-time ministry. He moved back to Michigan and Jane Loughborough was one of the pioneer missionaries who came here to England. Southampton Church, the first church in the British Isles. If you look at the registry book which they have down at Newbold, his signature is the first signature of the founding members here of the first church in the British Isles. Would he have done that if an older, wiser, person hadn't mentored him and encouraged him and guided him back into the ministry? I don't know. I don't know. He lived a long life as a missionary. He got married. I believe he got married twice, actually. His first wife passed away fairly young. He got married the second time. I don't know if that's his first wife or his second wife. I'm not quite sure. This is another man who's got an inspiring story. His name is S.N. Haskell. S.N. Haskell was born in 1833. Fascinating story. He got converted at 15, and at 19, he got married to a woman 20 years older than him. He was working for a man, and the man said, I'm going to die soon, and my daughter, I need someone to take care of her. Will you take care of her? And he said, okay, I'll take care of her. And then later on that night or the next week, he started to think, if I'm going to take care of, of, of my employer's daughter, the only way I can do that is if I marry her. So he then proposed to this woman with this kind of line of reasoning, and, and it's not the most romantic line of reasoning that there is in the world, but she agreed and they got married. 20 years older than him. Her name was Mary. But she supported him in his ministry, in his travels. She supported him all the way. Unfortunately, she died in 1881. She was 20 years older. He wrote a letter to Ellen White. And in capital letters, he said, I loved her and she loved me in capital letters. The rest of the letter was small case and I loved her and she loved me. As if to emphasize the point, we were in love. S.N. Haskell, S.N. Haskell, what happened there? S.N. Haskell, before he was employed, he had organized all the Bible study societies in New England. He had started all these groups that he was visiting, and when James White and the other believers came there, they they, they were really impressed by this man who was only 37 years old, that he got all this organization ability and organized the believers. There was no Adventist organization there, and he said, hey, here's all the believers here in New England. They were so impressed with it, they ordained him as a minister and made him the conference of the New England conference there. He also founded the Vigilant Missionary uh, Society that later on would become what we know today as the ABC, Adventist Book Center. At one time in his life, he was serving as the president of the Maine Conference, the president of the New England Conference, and the president of the California Conference at the same time, in the days before internet and airplane travel. He was a serious man, professional soap maker. He served as a missionary to Australia, to New Zealand. And in 1897, he got married the second time to a woman called Hetty Hurd. And they went as missionaries to Africa. He was one of the pioneering missionaries down there to Cape Town. In between that, though, interesting fact of history, Stephen Haskell proposed to Ellen White. Did you know that? Some of you may did. She was single. Her husband had died. He was single. His wife had died. They were very close. In fact, Stephen Haskell, aside from James White, is the man she wrote the most letters to. They were very close. He proposed to her, and she said no. (laughs) Not sure exactly what all her reasons were. I think she thought it would be very complicated for the church if the prophet got remarried, and you know what would the books be? Ellen White, Ellen Haskell, whatever, whatever. I don't know all the reasons why she said no but she said no she said no I think you should marry Hetty Heard instead so anyway he married Hetty Heard, and who became Hetty Haskell and even though she was his first wife was 20 years older his second wife was 20 years younger but guess what (laughs) she died before him too (laughs) she died before him and he was asked once when you die because one wife was buried on the East Coast, and one wife was buried on the West Coast. And he was asked before he died, which woman do you want to be buried next to when you die? <laughs> he was a very pragmatic man, a very practical man. He just simply said, whichever one I'm closer to when I die, geographically speaking. Wherever I die in the country, if I die on the East Coast, bury me on the East Coast. If I on the West Coast, bury me on the West Coast. He was in California when he died, so he's buried there in a graveyard in California. Next to his or beside his or his first wife. Stephen Haskell. Before we close, I want to share with you a quick story about this man here. Familiar face, who's this? J.N. Andrews. There's another picture of him with his wife and his children. J.N. Andrews was one of the most brilliant men our church ever produced. He was once asked if he lost the Bible, what would he do? He said, I'd rewrite the New Testament and most of the Old Testament. Very intelligent man. Which is why, based in light of what I shared yesterday, I think our church would be a different church if he was around in 1888 at the general conference session there. The church needed a missionary. What had happened was, there was actually an unofficial missionary who went to Europe. His name was Chachowski. He was a Polish man. And uh, the church didn't want to send him. It's kind of a controversial story. The church in, in America didn't want to send him to Europe. They weren't quite convinced on his character and the way he handled money. So they didn't send him and sponsor him. So he actually went to the first day Advent Christians and asked them if they would sponsor him as a missionary. He kind of pretended to be one of them. So they said they'd sponsor him as a missionary. So he came to Europe, and then while he was here as a missionary, he was a missionary, missionarying in Seventh-day Adventist doctrine while being sponsored by the first-day Christians. Well, as soon as they found out, they cut their money to him, but that wasn't for a few years. Anyway, while, during that time, he raised up a number of Adventist churches. He never told them that there was a wider Seventh-day Adventist church, though. And he raised one group up in a place called Trameland, Switzerland. And you can still go there today to the first... Seventh-day Adventist church in Europe in Tramland, Switzerland. And he raised the group up there. Now, one of them found a Review and Herald magazine in his house when they went around to visit and then realized that they weren't just one group there in Switzerland. There was a worldwide group. And so they contacted the church in America and they sent one of their members, his name was Jacob Erzberger, they sent him to America to find out what these Adventists are all about. He went, came, went to America and when he went to America, he said, we need someone to come to Europe. So then, the church in America sent the first official, that's why we say the first official missionary, J.N. Andrews. Unfortunately, right before he traveled to Europe, his wife died. Mary, his wife died. Her grave there is in the same cemetery that James White's brother's in, and and sister-in-law, Angeline. So he bade farewell with his daughter and his son, and they went to Europe. They settled in Basel, Switzerland. And it's a sad, it's, it's a sad story, the history of the Andrews family. They settled in Europe. The church, he was the first missionary. They didn't quite know how much money to send with him as a missionary. They didn't send enough. They didn't send enough. So he had to use some of his salary in the work. In the process of doing that, he didn't have really enough money to live on. So he was just eating a basic diet, no fruit, very little vegetable, just eating basic, basic food. Essentially, he ate himself onto the sickbed. His daughter caught tuberculosis. He wasn't sure if it was tuberculosis, but there was a general conference session. So he accompanied his daughter, left his son in Europe, and went back to Europe to take her to Dr. Kellogg. Dr. Kellogg looked over her and he said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, John. Your daughter has tuberculosis and there's not much I can do for her. She was 16 years old at the time and she had been his rock in Europe. She learned French quicker than he did. And she was the translator of Les Cines de whatever it is, Times in French. She was the translator at the age of 13, 14, 15, 16. Pioneering the work in Europe as a teenage girl with no mother with a father who can't cook very good food, if at all. And there she is as a missionary. They get back to Battle Creek and, Jay, and, and, and John Harvey Kellogg says she's going to die. And he told Jay and Andrews, he said, stay away from your daughter because you may catch it too. But Jay and Andrews, he felt a... What would you say? A sense of commitment. This was his young daughter that had stood by his side after his wife had died and she was his rock in Europe and he refused to leave her, her hospital room. He stayed right next to her all the way through her sickness until her death. And like John Harvey Kellogg said, Jay and Andrews caught tuberculosis from his dying daughter. Soon after he sailed back to Europe, he got to England, wasn't in good shape, landed in Liverpool, made his way down south, and they, they made his way to Europe. And it wasn't long before he came down with the sickness in Switzerland. The church at large was worried about John, uh, Jay and Andrews. They sent Jay and Loughborough, who was in England, over there to Switzerland just to anoint it. But the sickness had gone too far. You know, Ellen White counseled J.N. And Andrews. J.N. And Loughborough was married twice. S.N. Haskell was married twice. It tells you something about the importance of a good wife, especially in those early days of poor diet, health, and everything else. And she counseled J.N. And Andrews. She says, you need to get married again. And he just said, I can't. He said, I can't. can't do it. He died at 54. He had 30 years left in him, at least, at least. It was a huge loss to our church when when Jane Andrews died. He's buried in Basel, Switzerland. His daughter, Mary, though, she's kind of like, well, she is. She was a teenage pioneer. In some ways, and, and, and maybe it's a, Maybe it's an exaggerated use of the word. In some ways, she's almost like a martyr. I know she wasn't killed by someone else. But she certainly died before her time by working too hard, sacrificing too much. Pressing the wrong button. You can go to her grave today. It's in that same graveyard right next to her mother. And to me, it was one of the most sobering graves we went to. Born 1861. Dies 1878. She served as a missionary for three and a half years. And died. When you look at the heritage that we have, the stories of our pioneers, they were young men and women in their young years who had a conviction that the belief they had had to be shared with the world even if it meant the sacrifice of their comfort, their finances, or in the case of Mary Andrews, even her life. They believed in the message more than, more than they valued their life. When you're asked the question, where do you come from? You can answer that question theologically. Our pioneers believe the Sabbath, stay at the dead. You can answer that question theologically. But you can also answer that question experientially. With a story. Where do we come from? This is just scratching. This is where we come from. It's a legacy that men and women lay down to give us the church that we have today. Let us not take that legacy they've handed on to us lightly or flippantly or for granted. We have a deep family history, amen? We have a deep family history. And let us value that. You know, in Romans 15, verse 4, it says, For whatsoever things are written aforetime are written for our learning, that through patient and comfort of the Scriptures we might have hope. And I know what I shared tonight, or these stories, is not in the Bible. But the principle remains that what happens before is written for our learning. That we can find comfort, hope, and assurance in the paths of those who have come before us. I pray that it may inspire us. It may motivate us to know that we don't have a dry history as a church. We have an exciting, a living, a rich, and a powerful history. And when we understand and know that, when we know the stories, it enriches who we are and inspires who we are today. I'd like to invite you as we close to, to kneel as we close in prayer and just remind you if you have any other questions or comments that you want to write on the cards, then please do so. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, Lord, we pause. And as we kneel down before you, we are recognizing we are, in many ways, there's a burden of history behind us. Lord, we thank you for the men and women who came before us and the sacrifices that they made. The burdens they carried. We thank you, Lord, for the legacy that we have today. Lord, be with us in our lives. May we not take for granted the opportunities that we have given to us for ministry and for service and for outreach. That we may live a life that's of more importance and bigger than ourselves. Lord, we thank you for this heritage we have in our family background. I pray you bless each one of us here and bless this church as well. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more.